I believe there is a place for a death penalty. Some crimes are so heinous, so horrible, that the only response that we as a civilized nation have for a most uncivil action is not only to try to deter that person from ever committing that crime again, but also as a warning to others that some crimes truly are beyond any other capacity for us to fix. At this point, America is one of the few countries that still uses the death penalty. We share that company with Iraq, Iran, countries in Africa, and China. This is a policy which has been rejected as a global human rights issue. Nebraska and the rest of the country should follow. When you look into the eyes of victims' families and realize the sense of loss and sorrow they have, it is important to ensure that a constitutional method of execution exists in Nebraska. There are some crimes that are so heinous they deserve death. Two of the most heinous crimes occurred where I live, where my children grow, have grown up, where my grandchildren are growing up. But cost is a very real factor. Do, do we really want to expend the dollars we expend in this, uh, uh, in this kind of a process, uh, or do we want to use that money uh, to, uh, uh, to go after more bad guys? People who are most likely to face a sentence of death are those who are least able financially to retain their own legal counsel. So that cost falls on all of the citizens of the state of Nebraska. Since Nebraska is one of the 33 states that still has the death penalty, we are using government resources in a failed experiment. We have 11 people on death row here in Nebraska. That's money that could be spent on victim support services, solving cold case files, and improving law enforcement in order to prevent future crimes. We don't need to be stumping more money into the death penalty system, which has been proven to be no deterrent on crime. Governor you know, one of the toughest <laughs> challenges that I ever faced as a governor was carrying out the death penalty. I did it more than any other governor ever had to do it in my state. As I look on this stage, I'm pretty sure that I'm the only person on this stage that's ever had to actually do it. Let me tell you, it was the toughest decision I ever made as a human being. I read every page of every document of every case that ever came before me because it was the one decision that came to my desk that once I made it, it was irrevocable. Every other decision somebody else could go back and overturn, could fix if it was a mistake, that was one. It was irrevocable. The public needs to know that it is very common that mistakes are made by our criminal justice system. We've had 1,300 executions in this country in the modern era, and in that same time, we've set free 140 people proven to be innocent from death row. That means it's a failed system where for every 10 executions, we have one person proven innocent. I wouldn't want to trust my life to a system that's getting it wrong 10% of the time. Good evening. I'm Professor Lloyd Ambrosius in UNL's History Department. Uh, it is my pleasure as chair of the Ian e. Thompson uh, uh, Forum on World Issues uh, Program Committee uh, to welcome you to uh, this debate uh, this evening or this dialogue this evening. Uh, this 
uh, is one of the events uh, during the current year focusing on uh, the larger theme of religion, rights, uh, and politics. Uh, we are grateful to our partners, the Cooper Foundation for ongoing support for the lecture series, NET, Nebraska Educational Television, for their production of the series, uh, UNL's KRNU Radio 90.3 FM, uh, and Lincoln Cable Channel 21. Uh, this lecture series uh, was conceived by and subsequently named after uh, Ian Jack Thompson. Uh, he was the person who conceived of the series and uh, helped to get us organized uh, before his death a few years ago. Uh, after the dialogue uh, this evening, uh, you will have the opportunity uh, to ask questions by writing your questions on cards uh, provided by the ushers. The ushers will then uh, collect uh, the cards and uh, those will be brought to the front so that as many of those questions as possible uh, may be answered by our two speakers. Uh, this evening, uh, in particular, uh, we're grateful uh, to Chuck and Linda Wilson. Uh, this is the uh, Chuck and Linda Wilson uh, dialogue on domestic issues, which is a part of the Thompson Forum uh, series. So we're grateful to the Wilsons for uh, their support for this particular uh, evening's event. Uh, it is now my pleasure to uh, introduce uh, tonight's moderator uh, for the dialogue. Uh, Susan Poser is the Richard and Catherine Smoker Professor of Law and Dean of the uh, University of Nebraska uh, Law School. Uh, now join me in welcoming uh, Dean Poser. Good evening, and welcome to the Chuck and Linda Wilson Dialogue on Domestic Issues. Tonight, the Wilson Dialogue will take the form of a debate on the death penalty, justice, retribution, and dollars. I would like to add my thanks to Chuck and Linda Wilson for creating and supporting tonight's debate and for their vision in creating an opportunity for us to consider together and in depth the most important domestic issues of our time. In a few moments, I will introduce our speakers. Following the introductions, each speaker will have a maximum of five minutes for an opening statement. Then I will put questions to them which they will discuss. After about 40 minutes of discussion, I will announce that we will begin to collect questions from the audience. At that point, if you have a question you would like me to ask the debaters, please raise your hand to get an usher's attention and you will be provided with paper and pencil. Please write your question down and give it to an usher. I will put some of those questions to our debaters, and at the end of the debate, there will be short closing statements from each of them. So we are here this evening to discuss the death penalty. I think it is accurate to say that there is both division and ambivalence in the United States about the death penalty. Some people believe that morality and justice require an eye for an eye in the most heinous crimes, while others believe it is immoral and improper for the state to be involved in killing its own citizens under any circumstances. In between these points of view are those who defend or oppose capital punishment on empirical or quasi-empirical grounds with arguments about deterrence, victims' rights, cost effectiveness, distributive justice, 
public safety, and the frequency of procedural error. Among Western democracies, only the United States permits capital punishment. Within the United States, 33 states, including Nebraska, allow for the death penalty. There's a good argument that the death penalty fits uneasily with our form of democracy, whose legal system has developed a great emphasis on due process. We know there are times when, despite procedure, innocent people have been put in prison and on death row, and perhaps even executed. But in fact, as the Supreme Court has pointed out, our Constitution contemplates the death penalty, particularly in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, which state that a person cannot be deprived of their life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Thus, it must be that with due process of law, one can be so deprived. And a lot of people would also say that most people who have been executed got what they deserved. And there were collateral benefits, including deterrence, increased safety, and closure for victims' families. We learned from the distinguished Ian Thompson lecturer, Dr. Robert Putnam of Harvard University last month, that the United States is possibly the most religious country in the world. This raises the further question of whether the death penalty's broad acceptance in the United States confirms our religiosity or somehow contradicts it. Here to discuss and debate these issues and more are two very distinguished speakers. Michael Radelet is a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. He completed his PhD at Purdue and his postdoctoral training in psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin Medical School and then spent 22 years at the University of Florida before moving to the University of Colorado Boulder. Professor Radelet served as chair of the sociology departments at Florida and at Colorado. Professor Radlett's research focuses on capital punishment, especially the problems of erroneous convictions, racial bias, and ethical issues faced by healthcare personnel who are involved in capital cases and executions. Radlett has testified in approximately 75 death penalty cases before committees of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives and in legislatures in seven states. He has worked with scores of death row inmates as well as with the families of homicide victims in Colorado. In 2011, Professor Radelet received a Distinguished Alumni Award from Purdue and the William Shambliss Award for Lifetime Achievement in Law and Society for, from the Society for the Study of Social Problems. He's, he's earned some other Lifetime Achievement Awards as well, I learned this evening. In 2012, he received a campus-wide award for distinguished research from the University of Colorado Boulder Faculty Assembly. After tonight's debate, Professor Radlett will be available in the orchestra lobby to sign books, several of which will be on sale, including his book, Facing the Death Penalty, and his book, In Spite of Innocence. Please join me in, in welcoming Professor Michael Radlett. Mr. J. Kirk Brown is the Senior Assistant Attorney General in the Nebraska Department of Justice. Mr. Brown is a graduate of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the University of Nebraska College of Law. After law school, Mr. Brown was a law clerk to Justice Clinton and then Justice Spencer of the Nebraska Supreme Court. Mr. Brown served as Nebraska's first Solicitor General from 2003 until, to, until 2012. He has also served as the Chief of the Criminal Bureau, Chief of the Criminal Appellate Section, and the Chief of the Civil Litigation Section in Nebraska. For almost three decades, Mr. Brown has been the state of Nebraska's primary counsel in capital cases and was counsel of record in Nebraska's three executions since 1976. 
Mr. Brown has been counsel of record in cases heard on their merits by the Supreme Court of the United States, and he authored the merits amicus brief joined by 15 states in the capital case of Shiro versus Summerlin in 2003. In 1995, Mr. Brown received the National Association of Attorneys General U.S. Supreme Court Best Brief Award for his brief in Victor versus Nebraska. Mr. Brown was an original member and is currently a director at large of the Board of Directors of the Association of Government Attorneys and Capital Litigation, and he served as its president in 1984. In 1995, he received the Association's Outstanding Appellate Advocacy Award for Region 2, and in 2007, Mr. Brown was awarded the William Schaefer Award for his contributions to capital litigation, law, and training. Mr. Brown was the general counsel to the Texas Department of Corrections from 1985 to 1991, where among his responsibilities, he witnessed over 20 executions. He has also served, interestingly, as a juror in a capital case in Texas in which the defendant was convicted and executed. Please join me in welcoming Mr. J. Kirk Brown. <laughs> Gentlemen. You will now each have up to five minutes to make an opening statement, and we will start with you, Mr. Brown. Okay. Thank you, and good evening. I need to begin by saying I do not speak to you tonight on behalf of the state of Nebraska or any elected official. The opinions I will offer you this evening are solely my own, based upon my exposure to this issue as an attorney working this ground for over 30 years, as a correctional administrator, as a juror seated to decide a capital case, and to a lesser extent, as a Lincoln fourth grader who witnessed the impact Charles Starkweather's murderous reign of terror had upon this community and this state. I think we have to begin with the fact that we are a country of laws. And as a matter of law, the power of government to punish crime is limited by the Constitution. Our Constitution has never been held to deny government the power to impose death as a punishment for the worst of murders. Nor does it appear we are morally prohibited from imposing death as capital punishment. I was raised on the King James Version of the Christian Bible, which contained the commandment, thou shalt not kill. However, even as a child, I was aware that society recognized and even praised exceptions to that otherwise unambiguous prohibition. I recently found it interesting to discover that a significant majority of current translations of the Christian Bible now interpret that commandment as, thou shall not murder. In the context of tonight's discussion, that is a significant change from the King James text. Murder is defined as an unlawful killing. There could be no clearer example of a lawful killing than an execution duly ordered by a court of law. Thus, death for the worst of murders is a punishment society is legally and morally at liberty to impose if it chooses. First-degree murder is the crime for which we authorize the most severe punishment. It is the intentional and premeditated killing of another human being. However, the spectrum of evil that falls within that legal definition is amazingly and frighteningly broad. It includes not only the intentional killing of a victim, but has included the murder of a victim by torture, the murder of a child, the murder of not just one, 
but two or three or hundreds or thousands of innocent human beings. There is currently agreement that a punishment of life imprisonment is a just punishment for most first-degree murderers. In Nebraska, roughly 90% of first-degree murderers are sentenced to life. But is life imprisonment a just punishment for every first-degree murder? Or is there some point on that spectrum of evil when a civilized and rational society says that is enough? A person guilty of that act deserves to die. The legislative bodies of over 30 states and the federal government have said yes, there are murders so vile, death is a just punishment, the only punishment that acknowledges the severity of this particular crime. Some argue our legal system cannot be trusted because it is made up of human judges, human lawyers, and human jurors, all listening to human witnesses. Our legal system recognizes the potential for human error and guards against it by the use of standards and procedures which radically tilt the legal playing field in favor of an accused, and by providing multiple layers of post-trial state and federal judicial review. The U.S. Supreme Court has stated, our courts are only required to accomplish what is humanly possible. Yet, of the 1,000, over 1,000 executions in this country since 1976, not one has been proven to have ended the life of a human being who was not guilty. Finally, during these hard economic times, the anti-death penalty argument du jour has become that our criminal justice system is too slow and too expensive. The criminal justice system is slow because it is being careful. The criminal justice system is expensive because it is leaning over backwards to be fair to the condemned murderer. As general propositions, I find those goals worthy of praise, not criticism. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Mr. Radelet, five okay. minutes. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, the E.N. Thompson Forum is a true jewel, I think, for the state of Nebraska and for the University of Nebraska community, and it's a real honor to be invited to come out here to Lincoln to participate in it. I certainly want to thank the students and faculty with whom I've interacted today for their hospitality. Uh, Katie Cervantes is around here someplace. She put together tonight's event. And especially we all, all, all owe our gratitude to Linda and Chuck Wilson, who generously support not only tonight's event, but annual dialogues on a wide array of domestic issue. Uh, it's a special honor to be on the stage tonight with the two other guests uh, who we have. Uh, Susan Poser is a Swarthmore alumna, uh, and Nebraskans are fortunate that she pursued a career in law rather than her undergraduate major, which was ancient Greek. I'm sure there are a lot of, a lot of jobs available there. Uh, there can be, and there can be no doubt at all that Mr. Kirk Brown knows more about Nebraska death penalty in cases and laws than anyone else on the planet. So needless to say, I'm hoping tonight I'll not be asked any specific questions about Nebraska law, much less ancient Greek. Um, and I also, before I begin, I want to say I know a lot of students uh, out there and out there in cyberspace have to do papers on tonight's presentation and react to it. And if there's anything that I can do to help give footnotes or more information about the death penalty, I'm, I won't give you my cell phone number. 
but my email address is simply radlett at colorado.edu, and I'd be happy to respond uh, to any, any questions uh, that you may have. And also, after the event tonight, there'll be representatives of Nebraskans against the death penalty outside, and they too will be available to help with any questions. From the start, I think we all agree that those who commit the most horrendous crimes should be punished and punished severely. But while a fundamental principle of justice is that those who commit the most horrendous crimes should receive the most severe penalties, that does not tell us anything about what that most severe penalty should be. The answer of, uh, to the question of what do people deserve is culturally and historically relative. It's not fixed. Until 1977 in the United States, people used this slippery notion of justice to justify executions for those convicted of rape. Until a US Supreme Court decision in 2002, justice demanded the execution of defendants who were mentally retarded. And until 2005, justice demanded the execution of kids aged 16 or 17 at the time of the crime. Historically, justice demanded all sorts of severe retributive and repulsive punishments, such as drawing and quartering or being beheaded. In 1900, in Lyman, Colorado, not too far from the Nebraska border, a crowd of several hundred lynched a 16-year-old kid named Preston Porter by literally burning him at the stake, no doubt using the same justifications of punishment that we still hear today. He deserved it. He had it coming. Justice demands it. Our question tonight is whether the evolving standards of decency and growing recognition that the goals of the death penalty can be met with alternative punishments allow us to scrap the death penalty forever. Clearly, our standards of decency and notions of justice are evolving and have been evolving for a long time. Our question tonight is not whether or not we ought to abolish the death penalty because we already are abolishing the death penalty and we're doing so at a speed that no one would have anticipated when Nebraska enacted its current death penalty statute in 1973. In 1977, there were only 16 countries from around the world that had abolished the death penalty. Today, that figure stands at 97 and a total of 141 jurisdictions or two-thirds of all countries on this planet have now abolished the death penalty in law or in practice. Last week, a total of 110 countries in the UN General Assembly backed a resolution calling for a worldwide abolition of the death penalty. Only 39 countries opposed it, including China, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and the United States. We're not in good company. In the United States, the number of new death sentences in 2011 fell below 100 for the first time since 1976. Overall, death sentencing rates in our country have fallen by 75% since the mid-1990s. Executions have also dropped off. For the past six years, the number of executions annually in the U.S. is half of what it was in 1999. In just the past five years, the death penalty has been abolished in New York, New Jersey, New Mexico, Illinois, Connecticut. Last fall, Oregon Governor John Kitzhaber pledged that there would be no executions as long as he was governor. In Nebraska in 2007 and in Colorado in 2009, the legislators failed to abolish the death penalty by one single vote. Nebraska, the Nebraska Senate actually voted to abolish the death penalty back in 1979, and in 1999 they voted to have a moratorium on death sentencing. Both those bills were vetoed by the governor. 
Just in the past 10 days, the governors of Maryland and New Hampshire have promised to lead fights for abolition in their states in 2013. Abolition is coming. Public support for the death penalty has also taken a dramatic fall since 1994, when the well-respected Nebraska outfit, the Gallup Organization, found that 80% of Americans supported executions. The last national poll on the death penalty, the 2012 American Values Survey conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute and released earlier this month, found that only 46% of Americans supported the death penalty, 47% supported life, the alternative of life imprisonment without parole. It is a humongously huge, immense, big O turn in public opinion in a very short time. Tonight I look forward to sharing with you the many reasons why the death penalty around the world is on its way out. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Radlett. I, I, um, you went over your time, but since Oops. you mentioned Swarthmore, I gave you a couple extra minutes. Okay, the first question tonight I will put to Mr. Brown. We will start very broadly and generally before getting a little more specific. Um, and each uh, debater will have three minutes uh, for an initial response to each question. Uh, Mr. Brown, there are many theories about the goal of the criminal justice system. Some people think it's deterrence, while others think, it, think it's retribution, public safety, or rehabilitation. Which goal of, or goals of the criminal justice system are most furthered by capital punishment? I think the, the strongest argument for capital punishment is simply that it is an appropriate punishment for the worst of crimes. That's another word for retribution. We create the penalties for our crimes to reflect. We call them offenses because as a society we are supposed to be offended by the behavior. In, in the case of the worst homicides, and that's all that is exposed to the death penalty in this country, I think retribution as an appropriate and proportionate punishment for some of these crimes is, is a justification in and of itself. I think deterrence is, is a much more complex issue. Uh, there are studies and arguments on both sides. I think the overarching thing is there is a logic to it. If people think they might be punished, they will, some of them at least, will uh, decline to engage in that behavior. I think there are reasons, uh, personally to me, that uh, make me question that. But the bottom line is with deterrence, if it gives the public a sense of enhanced safety to live their lives and put their children to bed and leave them there and think they're safe, then it accomplishes something of a social good in and of itself. Beyond that, I think uh, the retribution argument stands on its own. Thank you. Mr. Radlett, would you, um, Do Professor Radlett, excuse me, will you please address the question of the goal of the criminal justice system that you think is most furthered by capital punishment? Uh, sure. Uh, I think the goal of retribution is correct. This is historically relative. Back in the 19th century and really up until the mid-70s, the primary goal was deterrence. But after social scientists began to study the deterrence issue and whether or not states with the death penalty had lower homicide rates than states without, uh, most Americans now have come to the conclusion that the deterrent effect of the death penalty is not any greater than uh, the deterrent effect of life without parole. And the death penalty is a deterrent. We all know that. Uh, last night I drove down from Omaha and there's a cop behind me, right? And if I thought the cop was going to shoot me for speeding, I wouldn't have sped. Right? 
the death penalty deters. Our question is a social policy point is whether the death penalty is a better deterrent than uh, life without parole. Uh, it's the marginal uh, deterrent effect. Nebraska does have life without parole. Anybody eligible for the death penalty, if they're not sentenced to death, will be sentenced to life without parole. And that's true in all the other 33 states around the country uh, that also have the death penalty. The, um, if we want to deter people, the certainty of apprehension is a much stronger deterrent than the severity of the punishment. That is, when you and I get followed by a cop, certainty increases, we're not going to speed. We don't know what, how severe the penalty is, but the certainty of being apprehended uh, is more effective than severity. And severity, after a while, loses any added deterrent effect. Uh, by that I mean that, uh, you know, if you want to deter people from sitting on the stove, medium heat works just as well as high heat. And if people aren't deterred by life without parole, they won't be deterred by death. That's why when New Mexico abolished the death penalty last year, we didn't see a whole bunch of people from Colorado, where we still have the death penalty, driving south to Santa Fe to do their 7-Eleven murders or you know, kill their spouse. Uh, the death penalty does not have added deterrent effects. So absent that, then retribution has replaced the death penalty, often retribution in the names of families of homicide victims as the primary uh, pro-death penalty argument. Thank you. Um, Mr. Brown, so how do we reconcile the goal of retribution um, with the fact that we know innocent people have been on death row or at least persuaded to plead guilty to a lesser offense because of fear of being, of being put to death? Uh, error can and does enter the system through inadequately trained lawyers, lack of resources for proper investigation, and juror bias. And sometimes all of the process in the world and, and all the heinousness of the crime uh, won't prevent an innocent person from being sentenced to death. Should that be a trump card? I don't think it is a trump card. I think it's a completely legitimate concern, but it's one that the system that we have addresses now. Uh, the most standard issue, the second round of review of any criminal sentence, death penalty or otherwise, is did the first set of lawyers do a good job for their client? We have had these exonerations. Uh, it's a human system. We can't guarantee there will not be human error. What we can guarantee is that we will put the eyes of a lot of decent human beings on these cases as, we, as the appellate courts review what's going on. And as far as humanly possible, we will guarantee that uh, the right result has been reached. Now. That's the law. That's the legal system. As far as determining guilt, we don't use a different legal system in death penalty cases than we do in burglary cases. No one seems to be concerned, at least not tonight, but that's not the topic, about our system being broken to determine about burglaries and armed robberies, and yet it is exactly the same system we use for death. This country is extraordinarily careful and tips the playing field in favor of the accused and provides extensive review of these decisions. And many of the quote unquote exonerations are errors that have been found during the normal review of these cases, which is exactly the purpose of the exercise in the first place, to either decide that an error has been committed and go back and correct it as it should be corrected or to determine that no error has been committed and to have some confidence in the result our system has presented or provided. 
Mr. Radlett, the doctor, Professor Radlett, I'm sorry, the system tips in favor of the accused in these cases? I'm sorry, is it? Does the system tip in favor of the accused in these cases? Well, does the system tip in, in favor of the accused? In the last uh, 30 years, there have been 140 people released from death rows around the country uh, because of doubts about their guilt. They're convicted by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt does not mean absolute certainty. That's not the standard for any criminal conviction in the United States. It might be the odds that they're guilty or, you know, I don't know, 95 percent. The problem with 95 percent is that's a 5 percent error rate, and for every 100 people you send to death row, you get five innocent people. 141 is, is uh, if you divide that by the number of executions since 1979 uh, in the United States, since 1976, for every 10 executions, we have one guy on death row who turns out to be innocent, or probably innocent. And when you look at the facts of the case of the discovery of innocence, it's not because the system works. It's not because prosecutors revisit the case or diligent defense attorneys hang on. It's usually by lady luck. You're just lucky as can be. You know, there was a case a few years ago in Illinois, a guy named Anthony Porter. They stopped the execution uh, right before he was scheduled to be executed because his IQ was so low that he couldn't tie his shoes, and they were litigating that. Meanwhile, classes began at Northwestern University, and a group of journalism students, just like students here at University of Nebraska, they were looking for a project. They're ta taking a class in investigative journalism. So they decide, well, this looks like an interesting case. They're about to kill this guy. Let's go check it out. So they all jumped in a van, drove to the south side of Chicago, and they reenacted the crime according to the trial transcripts. I was standing here. I had a clear look. And the students would stand there and what do you mean, man? There's a building in the way. You didn't have a clear, you know, what's going on here? They got the police file. The police had another suspect. So the students say, well, let's go, let's go talk to the, uh, let's go see, let's go check, check out the guy who was the alternative suspect. They go over to his house, knock on the door. Mom comes to the door and says, yeah, my kid killed the guy. The SOB, is this a public school? We can say that, SOB. A state office building is just down the street. <laughs> <laughs> he robbed him, and my son killed him. And here's his address in Milwaukee. Go check it out. So the students pile in the van. They stopped in Evanston to pick up a cop who was packing heat. Don't try this at home. They go to Milwaukee, and they knock on the door. The guy says, yeah, I did it. I did it. And, uh, you know, the guy ripped me off. So the next thing I see reading the paper in Florida is Anthony Porter being released from prison. This is not the system working. This is absolute pure luck. We're making these godlike decisions without godlike skills. And it's not only people who are absolutely innocent who are being sentenced to death. It's people who should have been convicted of second-degree murder. Or in Nebraska, you've sentenced mentally ill people to death. You've sentenced mentally retarded people to death. So we're not very good about making these life-and-death decisions with the godlike decisions that we would hope to have. And I guess I would just have to add that at some point in time, someone has to make these decisions. They don't and if it's not a death say, penalty case. Is that decision going to be made by me or, or by Professor Radlett, or is it going to be made by our court system? Who are we going to trust to make that decision? Because I can have opinions of people who I think might be guilty or people I think might be innocent. I can't substitute my judgment for the judgment of the court system of this country. And it's the courts that are exonerating these people. They're convicted on evidence and they're exonerated based on evidence. So 
a system that is able to correct itself doesn't seem to me to be a system that is failing. Well, we don't know how often it doesn't correct itself. And to answer your question, who do we trust to make these decisions? No one. No one has that godlike wisdom to decide who's guilty, who's innocent, or even among the guilty, who's the most deserving. These are pretty technical, high, hard things to uh, judge, and reasonable people differ. And the only way to get rid of that human error is to get rid of the death penalty. Well, Professor Radlett, um speaking of God, um, how do we reconcile these three facts? First, America is by some measure the most religious nation on earth, and certainly in the Western world, if you measure it by church attendance and stated belief in God. And second, you yourself have noted that the organizations that represent American Catholics, Jews, and most Protestant denominations oppose the death penalty and are in favor of its abolition. Yet third, the majority of the state legislatures, presumably representing these very same people, have adopted the death penalty. How do we reconcile those three things? Uh, quite easily. The majority of legislatures around the country that adopted the death penalty did so at a time when we didn't have alternatives to the death penalty like we have today. In Nebraska, when you all adopted the death penalty back in 1973, the alternative, instead of being sentenced to death, was 10 or 15 years in prison. That speaks to the marginal deterrent effect, but it also speaks uh, to the issue of the morality of the death penalty and, and what alternatives we have that can reach the same goals. Now we have life without parole, the ball game has changed. Now we know a lot more about the lack of deterrent effect of the death penalty. Earlier this year, this has been debated back and forth by academics, I think as many of you know, is the death penalty deterrent, is it not, blah, 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 I say it is, you say it's not. So the National Academy of Sciences get, got involved. This is the top group of scholars in the United States. It's the best we've got. And they appointed a panel, and the panel looked into the research that looked at the deterrent effect of the death penalty. They wrote a book. It's just out. It's at the University of Nebraska Law Library. Maybe we can get in there after tonight's debate and take a look at it. Definitely. And uh, they concluded that there is no evidence at all that the death penalty is a better deterrent than life without parole. So the legislators that did enact death penalty statutes were doing it at a time when we didn't have the alternatives that we have today, and they were doing it under the mistaken belief that it would make them look tough on crime and that it would actually reduce homicide rates. We know that premise is false, so that's why people are revisiting it. Thank you. Mr. Brown, would you like to respond to that question? Well, I, I think it reflects a generic sense of what's appropriate within the communities within the states that have the death penalty, this is a reaction to their sense, their values, as to what is an appropriate punishment for the worst of crimes. I, in looking at this, and I'm certainly no biblical scholar, and it has uh, been pointed out often that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops opposes the death penalty. What's interesting is, according to what I've read from the Pew Forum on Religion and Politics, the catechism of the Catholic Church sanctions the use of the death penalty under certain circumstances. So you have organizations that there are co conflicts even among themselves. <coughs> Another study said that in 1991, 41% of those opposing the death penalty said it was immoral. Today, only 27% of those opposed to the death penalty say that immorality is their reason for opposing it. I think 
Religion gives us a sense of right or wrong, but Americans tend to make law enforcement, criminal justice decisions in a very pragmatic way, guided by their religious or moral beliefs, and those are expressed in a democracy through the actions of our legislature. Okay. Uh, the, um, we can fuss about the Bible until, I guess, till we're all going into the gates of heaven uh, to determine its true meaning, its real meaning. Look. Why don't we look to the people whose job it is to interpret morality to be our, the moral leaders of our state? And in Nebraska, those moral leaders are the leaders of our religions, the major religions. The Catholic bishops in Nebraska, as well as the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church, USA, United Methodist Church, are among the large denominations in Nebraska that uniformly oppose executions. I have in my hand a statement read March 4, 2011, by the Nebraska Catholic Conference to the Senate here in Nebraska, saying that uh, although the Catholic Church does allow for the possibility of executions, when there is no other alternative, they say our opposition to the death penalty is absolute in practical reality. Now, that message has not gotten down to the pews yet. It's getting there. If you look at public opinion polls, especially among Catholics, but also true among other religions as well, more and more today stand opposed than was true 10 or 15 years ago. So public opinion on this is changing. And as Nebraskans find out that they do have an alternative of life without parole, how expensive the death penalty is, and the wisdom and leadership of these Catholic, moral, Catholic and Christian and Jewish moral leaders in the state, we should ask them, what do you guys think? What do you women think? Ask the nuns. I've never met a nun who supported the death penalty except the one when I was in eighth grade who wanted to kill me, but that's another story. The, um, you know, the, that, that, that is absolute firm across the board on their statements about the morality of the death penalty. Thank you. Mr. Brown, to my knowledge, every study about the cost of the death penalty has found that it costs significantly more per prisoner than life in prison without parole. For example, one recent study in Utah found that implementing the death penalty cost the state $1.6 million more than life without parole. A study in California in 2008 reported that the state was spending $137 million per year on the death penalty, including on cases where it is ultimately not imposed, and estimated that a comparable system that sentenced the same inmates to life in prison without parole would cost only $11.5 million per year. In California, the cost of confining one inmate to death row is 90,000 per year more than the cost of incarcerating the same inmate in a maximum security prison because of the extra security and the individual services that solitary confinement requires. Notably, in 2010, the Nebraska Unicameral was unable to pass a bill appropriating funds to study the costs in Nebraska, so we don't have any figures for Nebraska. Can we justify satisfying the moral outrage of the community at such a cost, particularly when those funds could be used for other kinds of crime prevention, and when in the case of Nebraska, the state has not even tried to figure out just how high those costs are? Or does that money buy us something more than satisfaction of moral outrage? Well, I, th I think the question is, if the death penalty is just, then we as a society ought to be able to afford to do justice. I would not like to have a decision with the gravity of the death penalty 
And I think the people who believe in it and the people who don't believe it would not dispute that this is a, a serious and heavy and weighty decision. And I just don't believe that that sort of decision should be made on a ledger sheet. Uh, if I could execute people a lot cheaper than I do now, I don't think people opposed to the death penalty would say, well, if you can do it for 375, that'll be fine with me. That's not the issue. Or it, let me put it this way, that should not be the issue. Can we afford to do justice? If we can't, then we've got much bigger problems than what, whether we have or do not have a death penalty. I mean, that's my only response. If this is the appropriate punishment for these crimes, then as a society, we should, we should pony up the expense of doing that. I don't deny that uh, certainly capital litigation is some of the most expensive litigation the state engages in. The stakes are very high. And there again, as I said, it is very high because we are working so hard to make sure we're doing it right. I find it ironic that over the last 30 years, people opposed to the death penalty have argued to the courts and very successfully at times, over and over and over again, you have to do more. You have to be more careful. You have to afford more process. And having accepted that and having provided that process, the system is now chastised because it's become too expensive to do. We're either gonna do justice and provide these safeguards, or we don't need to provide these safeguards and we'll do justice more cheaply but I don't think it should be a dollars and cents we can turn a bigger profit some other way. I just don't think a question this important should turn on who or what we make the most money on. I think the other issue, and I don't know these studies, but I know from my time as a correct, in corrections, if you take a per year cost of a prisoner, that whether it's 90,000, whatever the number would be, that's fine. If you're keeping a prisoner for the rest of their natural life, you backload huge costs because you are now going to provide the geriatric care for that prisoner, and the cost of that, as we all know, is astronomical. That isn't an argument to do one thing or another too, but it is a reality that there are costs, uh, the state of Nebraska paid for open heart surgery for a prisoner, prisoner on death row. Uh, that is part of our responsibility as a custodian of these people. But there are costs at both ends, but I just don't think cost is the reason, unless we want to say we can't afford to do justice, uh, I, I just don't see that uh, the decision whether or not we're gonna take life for crime uh, should turn on that issue. Professor Radelet. Thank you. So uh, these studies on the cost of the death penalty have been floating around for the last decade or so. They've been done by academics, they've been done by journalists, they've been done by state supreme courts, they've been done by legislatures, and every one of those studies has found that the death penalty costs millions more than life without parole, even calculating the cost of treating uh, old prisoners. It's incredibly expensive because the, nobody's gonna plead guilty in a death penalty case, or very few do. Trial course costs are much more expensive. The jury, juries oftentimes have to be sequestered. There's two parts to the trial. They're gonna haul in experts by the bucketful. I mean, we've got a case, as I'm sure you all well know, that may or may not be a death penalty case in Colorado involving a man who uh, shot up the theater in Aurora. And if they go for death in that case, the mental health professionals are just gonna make zillions and godzillions, 
bucks, a lot of money, Udo bucks for the next 20 years debating about how crazy the guy is. Yet, this, the state of Nebraska refuses to do a study on how much it costs. I mean, it's, it's really bizarre. Before this building was built, I'm sure they knew pretty close exactly how much this building would cost. You know, before the University of Nebraska hires a new law professor, they know exactly how much that's going to cost. Before they build the highway, a new highway, they get the cost. We know the cost of everything except the death penalty. You get a carte blanche. And the state has to take that money from someplace out of the general revenues. It's easy uh, to uh, find the money by, you know, taking it away from other programs uh, where we need, where we need uh, money uh, more. One of those programs might be helping families of homicide victims. That's a good idea. That's what the death penalty is supposed to do. So look at this. Well, you can't look at it, but I'll look at it, and I'll read it to you. Let's talk about helping families of homicide victims and how those millions we spend on one case to kill a guy who otherwise is going to spend his whole life in prison. I have data from the U.S. Department of Justice on the clearance rate for homicides. Back in 1960, 92% of homicides were solved, 9 out of 10. In 1976, that dropped to 79%. In 2005, 62% of homicides in the United States were solved. Four out of ten people who killed in Nebraska and elsewhere in the United States are never apprehended. We've got a group in Colorado. My students over the last ten years have documented 1,500 unsolved homicides. We've got a group of their family, about 1,000 together. And they went to the state legislature in 2009 and said, look, you know, the death penalty is irrelevant to us. It's irrelevant to 40% of the victims because you never caught the guy. We need cold case squads to investigate what's going on. So if you ask families of homicide victims writ large, the whole group, not just the one case where the guy's on death row, they're going to say, I want to find out who killed my loved one. Let's spend some money there. Let's hire some more cops who know what they're doing. I just have to add the implication that unless we shift money from the death penalty, no one is looking for murderers in this country is a little offensive. Law enforcement is out there looking for these people, but they need evidence. And if they can't find evidence, they can't pursue them. But to say that we will catch more murderers if we shift money to law enforcement, I think insults to a certain extent the level of efforts that I think law enforcement around this country is already engaging in trying to bring these people to justice. But it's not true. Cops are saying, I can't investigate a, a case from five years ago in Omaha. I'm working on the homicide from last week. They're saying, I don't have the special training that we need to investigate these cold cases. And the answer is to have a statewide cold case squad that's trained in special methods to investigate these cases. And we know in Colorado, we've seen case, case after case after case where people who know what they're doing actually do every once in a while solve these cases. They're very difficult. But that's what the families want. That's how we should be spending our money. And I guess I'd just add one other thought. As much as we empathize with the families of the victims, and we do and we should, we aren't doing this, whether it's life imprisonment or the death penalty, we aren't pursuing this solely for the families of the victims. We are not their henchmen. We are doing this on behalf of all of the citizens of this state, and that is the community that needs to feel that we're doing justice. 
Well, Professor Radley, you've brought up the victims' uh, families, so let me ask you a question about that. Um, some have argued that the death penalty brings closure for the families of the victims. The Supreme Court has found that it's not necessarily unduly prejudicial to the defendant to allow victim impact statements, which describe the effect of the crime on the lives of the victim's loved ones, to be presented during the sentencing phase of capital cases. Where do the families and friends of victims fit into our discussion of arguments for or against the death penalty, and should their experiences be part of the calculation that goes into criminal sanctions? You know, closure is a term that people use when they refinance their house. Mortgages are closed. The homicide of a loved one is never closed. You can walk away from a prison after the guy is executed, and you might feel, you might, you know, you might say, yeah, I feel good. But a week later, a month later, a few years later, your loved one is still dead. There's never closure, death penalty or not. Once there's a homicide in your family, there's a hole in your family that never completely heals. So what the death penalty does do, however, is put the victim in a state, the victim's family, in this state of uncertainty. You know, first of all, what the death penalty does is we take 1% of the homicides and we say we're going to seek death in this case. That leaves prosecutors to say to, vict to other victims, your case isn't good enough. Sorry, the murder of your loved one isn't worth going for death. We're just going to plea bargain that one out. So people feel cheated there. Then in death penalty cases, many are called but few are chosen. By that I mean they seek death in a lot of cases where death is never imposed. Or death is imposed, since 1976 in the United States, among all those sentenced to death, only 15% have been executed. People get, the conviction gets thrown out, they come back for retrial, those wounds stay open again and again and again. The, um, I want to quote, I could go on and on, but I just want to quote. Well, you have a minute and a half. Okay, well, <laughs> the, the, look it. A month ago, we saw the end, E-N-D, of one of the most horrific murders in recent years in the United States, when Jared Lochner killed six people and wounded 12 in uh, Tucson. This is the Gabby Gifford uh, case. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty nasty, pretty nasty stuff. He was sentenced to a zillion consecutive life without parole sentences. And he was sentenced without any outcry by the community or any outcry by the families of the, of the victims. As a matter of fact, the community and the victims welcomed it. They're done with it. Mark Kelly, you know, the astronaut, the husband of the wounded victim, Gabriel Giffords, uh, the congressman from the area, he said something that makes me think the death penalty is more about us than about him. The death penalty is about what kind of a society do we want to be? Mark Kelly addressed the judge and addressed Lochner, and he said to Lochner, quote, you have decades upon decades to contemplate what you did, but after today, after this moment, here and now, Gabby and I are done thinking about you. And he turned around and walked out of the courtroom. The, uh, Lochner was sentenced to uh, life in prison, case is over. Before Mr. Brown responds to the question about victims' families, I will uh, let you know that uh, 
At this point, the ushers will uh, collect your questions. So if you have a question for our debaters, uh, please raise your hand and an usher will give you a piece of paper and a pencil and we will get those up here. Uh, Mr. Brown, would you please respond to the question about victims, families? Well, I think I touched on that briefly before, but victims, families suffer and they suffer differently. And in Nebraska, we have had cases where one member of a family wanted to pursue uh, the appellate process in a, in a capital case, other members of the family very s seriously did not. And the only thing I can say to them, other than the great efforts that the prosecutor's offices in this state do to coordinate with and inform victims' families, is to say, in the end, it can never be the family's decision what the law should be and what route should be pursued. We don't do this, we don't seek vengeance for families any more than we seek closure for families. The job we are tasked with is attempting to do justice as seriously and as carefully as we can and hopefully some comfort will come to the families of the victims, but the offense isn't against the family. And if we have become such a callous community where we say, well, that happened to them, I don't care, we're in a lot of trouble whether we have the death penalty or not. We should all be offended by what happened to that family. And that's what the justice system, the criminal justice system, is intended to do, is to seek a sense of justice for all of us not just for the family. Well, now, you know, justice. What is justice? Justice demands that we do this. This is not something that we're subservient to justice. They tell us what to do. We define justice. We tell justice what we want. Yes, we, we do. We get to say what is just and what is not just. And again, it's historically relative. It's culturally relative. That's why uh, so many countries from around the world are, are abandoning the death penalty. We if you say we have to pursue justice or justice demands that we do this, takes out our role as human actors, it takes out our agency in defining what kind of a world we want to live in. And we waste all this money on one case, one guy who's otherwise going to die in prison, and the families of homicide victims are having bake sales so that they can organize to lobby for cold case squads. We get other organizations that are trying to help kids get straight, live good life, and avoid criminal violence, uh, like Tom and Nancy Osborne's uh, program uh, here, in, here in Nebraska, the Teammates Program, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, uh, all these programs that are, help, that are early intervention and helping kids avoid criminal behavior, they're not getting funded. They're not getting funded because of this, we want to pursue this notion of justice. We get to define what justice is, and it is unjust if we use all the cash on one case and leave the other families of the homicide victims without any assistance or we're not properly funding good programs that can reduce the rate of criminal violence in our community. Um, uh, Professor Radlett, to go back to the deterrence issue for a moment, um, and as you mentioned, you've authored studies uh, that look at the deterrent effect of the death penalty, and you have found that most sociologists and criminologists who've studied this believe there is no deterrent effect. Uh, obviously, those who commit the murders uh, were not deterred. Um, but how do we know that others were not so deterred? Um, isn't it possible that the existence of the federal death penalty and the death penalty in a majority of states might act as a deterrent to criminals, 
even in states without the death penalty, simply because the criminals don't understand the jurisdictional issues and might incorrectly believe that they might be put to death for a murder, even if they are in a state that does not have it? Well. How can we find that out? Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of research by criminologists on the deterrent effect of the death penalty that wasn't available in 1973 when Nebraska uh, instituted the death penalty in this state. And there's different ways to do it. You can look at the homicide rate in states with the death penalty and states that don't have it, or you can do a time series analysis. You can predict murder rates based on a wide array of factors and see if the existence of the death penalty or the number of executions have a deterrent effect. And the criminologists who read this stuff, we did a survey, we've done it two different times, of the top criminologists in the United States. They say that on their basis of reading the, the literature, there is no evidence that the death penalty is over and above uh, the deterrent effect of life without parole. So, and, and people didn't believe that. People said, well, you know, they got this guy down here, he just did a study and says that every execution deters, you know, 100 homicides. So, you know, the results are mixed. That's why the National Academy of Sciences this year got involved, they actually got involved a couple years ago. They've done this major study, and you can email me, I'll send you the results of it. You know, these are like the top egghead scholars. They, you know, that's their job to read all this stuff. Look at life without parole is really not so, not so good. Students taking notes should write down life in prison really, can I say sucks? It sucks. I don't know what the precise word might be. Should people we make, in prison are should miserable. Should we make it worse for people who would have gotten the death penalty? Did we, should we make life in prison uh, without parole worse for them to make up for the fact that they're not going to be executed? Well, you know, life in prison is pretty bad, and prisons have a way of making things worse for people who don't conform to the rules. So if you don't conform to the rules, first thing that goes is your visits, then your books, then you get an isolation cell. You know, we need uh, uh, people in prison usually have access to televisions. If not, they go nuts. The guards love televisions. It gives the guys something to do. They lose their television. You know, of, of the executions in the United States since 1977, 12% of those executed dropped their appeals. They'd rather be dead. They dropped their appeals, fired their lawyers, and say, kill me, I would rather be dead than do life, life without parole. Life without parole isn't so bad for me. Well, my wife, my dog. Yeah, I'm going to be dead in 10 years. I'm going to have my heart attack, I don't know, hopefully 15 years, right? But if you're, if you're a student here at the, at the University of Nebraska, you're 18, 20, 22 years old, life without parole is a really long time. And those of you who have been in prisons know, and those of you who haven't there, been there should know, that they're horrible places. The people are miserable. And every day, they, get, they have to live with their guilt. Perhaps they might not have much guilt when they get there, but we can always hope for redemption. Redemption, we can hope for redemption. We can keep some of these people, we can keep these people alive and learn from them. I worked 10 years with Ted Bundy. Pretty strange guy. They killed him. Who knows what made him tick? You know, we don't know, he's dead. Maybe if we keep him alive for for a while, longer, for a natural death. He could have come to grips. He was struggling to do it, coming to grips with the horror, horror of his crimes. We could have learned from it. We could have prevent, we perhaps could prevent future homicides from doing something like that. So um, when I think of the deterrent effect of the, of the death penalty over life without parole, 
we've got to realize that life without parole is a horrible, horrible existence. Thank you. Um, Mr. Brown, would you like to respond? If life without parole was worse than death, we wouldn't have death penalty people. I mean, it, it just, to me, is a ridiculous argument. Nobody wants to die. Almost everyone will say, I would prefer to live. And the answer to why does X get to live and I don't get to live, the answer should be because X only robbed a bank. You robbed a bank and slaughtered five people. That's why you don't get to live and X does. And X killed somebody and X is doing life without parole. That's the problem with this ultimately is if we make life without parole the maximum punishment that we can impose for people who go out and kill at random, kill for their sexual pleasure, if we make life without parole the maximum punishment, how do we proportionately punish people who haven't killed 20 people? Do we have to say, well, if we're trying to be proportionate, those people get sentenced to less? And everybody gets sentenced to less. And at some point, we ratchet down the whole system. We're certainly free to do that, but I don't think our, our gut reaction is that's what we want to do. Deterrence, to me, is, is a very thorny issue. And I've already said, I think the best thing I can say about deterrence is if, if the public believes it makes they and their children safer and they can go out there and lead a normal life, that is a huge benefit to society, regardless of whether it's true or not. But I'll be honest with you. I've lived with these cases for 30 years. I can tell you one thing, no matter what you do, there will be people who will not be deterred. They're not deterred by the death penalty. And we will be left with the question, what do we do with the ones who aren't deterred? That's what this debate is about. Not about social engineering. We will never get the phone call at the Lincoln Police Department saying, well, I was about to blow up a school bus of kids at Claire McPhee, but I thought about the death penalty and I just decided not to do it. We aren't going to get that phone call. So we don't know. We hope. And there's nothing wrong with hoping. But there's also something very wrong with not having a plan for the person that isn't deterred and wreaks havoc on our community. Could I, I'd just like to mention one thing that hasn't been brought up. The effect of the death penalty over and above life imprisonment is felt, I believe, less by the inmate and more by his family. I've gone, I've gone through last visits with 50 people and watching those guys say goodbye to their mom, their kids. I remember uh, in 1984 walking out of Florida State Prison with uh, a lawyer, the inmate's wife, and two kids, like nine and 12, something like that. This is in the middle of the night, and they're screaming up and down the hallway. This prison, they make prisons to echo the clanging of the bars. Please, you know, please don't kill my daddy, that kind of stuff. And I'm like pinching myself, is this, is this real? Is this really going on? This is David Washington, who was executed 
uh, the next morning. They watched David Washington being led down the hallway back to the electric chair. And we're left walking out the front door with the family. Nobody ever thinks about the family of the condemned. They can't talk about it at work. They don't get support at the church. They don't even want their neighbors to know. It's like the death, you know, in order for a punishment to be just, it's got to affect only the guilty. It's got to shoot with like a rifle. The death penalty is like a shotgun. It affects the family as much as it affects the inmate. It affects those kids who've got to grow up with a dead father they can't even visit in prison. And, you know, the reality of this is that you and I can think about our deaths, we can anticipate our deaths, we can dread our deaths, but we can't reflect on our deaths because we'll be dead. But the moms can and the wives can. It disproportionately affects women and the kids can. Can you imagine growing up, trying to live a decent life when your dad is executed? I mean, it just has that notion of justice is not affecting just the criminal, it affects an ever wider circle of tragedy. Well, before we start being concerned about the children of those condemned to die, I would like to think about the parents and the community of terrified parents who didn't get to say to John Jubert, please don't stab my baby to death. Please don't snatch him off the street. They didn't get to say that. All they got to do was go out in the weeds and find their babies. That's the kind of evil that we need to decide whether we want to punish that the same way we punish other first-degree murders or whether that is worse. And if it's worse, then it deserves a worse punishment. Do you want to respond, Professor Radlett? Do I want to respond? Oh, well, you don't have the, to. The, um, <laughs> You know, John Juber executed in Nebraska, I don't know, uh, Kirk, 1992, something like that. He's a bad guy, a bad dude. Nebraska's got some bad dudes. <laughs> we want to be different than them. We can be different than them. We don't want to imitate what they do. We don't have to do this anymore. John Juber could rot in prison, throw him, throw him in a cell. You know, see in 50 years, see in heaven, you know? We don't imitate the acts that we want to, that we want not to happen. This is our decision. Okay, I have several questions from the audience on the same theme, so I'll try to um, cover them all. Um, there's significant research that a majority of prisoners on death row are black men. How do we address the racial equality in the death penalty? Uh, given that there are far more, far more convictions of racial minorities? I think the answer to that question is we do not, the government does not license people to kill. We don't control who the class of killers are. Killers choose to take an innocent life and we have to react to them. And we can't say to a white killer, or a black killer, or a Hispanic killer, I'm sorry, we can't arrest you. We can't try you, we can't convict you, we can't incarcerate you, because that's gonna knock our numbers out of balance. We can't do it. And our criminal justice system isn't based on race. Our criminal justice system is based on evidence that a particular individual committed a particular act. And if the evidence says 
this individual committed this act and that act is a crime, whether it's a horrible homicide or a burglary or a robbery, the system doesn't say, are you black? It doesn't say that. It says, are you guilty? And if a disproportionate number of any group of people, men, women, race, Protestants, Catholics, that's not how our system works. And so it's very difficult to judge the result of an individualized system by saying, well, in the end, you got too much of somebody. Because that's not the challenge we face from the get-go. The challenge we face is to find the person we don't say, oh my gosh, I can't arrest a Hispanic because we're already over our quota on Hispanics today. We can't do that and make the public safe. So we need to deal with the individuals who commit crimes. Now, those statistics may well tell us we've got a problem in that community because a disproportionate number of people of that classification seem to be committing crimes. And that's a legitimate focus of concern. But it doesn't tell me the system's broken, but it may be indication that there is a social problem somewhere. And it may be, we may be called upon to address it, but the criminal justice system doesn't work on race. It works on evidence, and it works on individual defendants and individual crimes. And so to hold them accountable for the fact that in the end, you found all these people guilty and they don't match the same profile as I see when I'm walking around Gateway Mall just isn't a legitimate test, in my opinion. Uh, okay, so uh, as we meet tonight, there are 3,100 people on death row in the United States. 3,100, there's probably 1,000 people here, so three times this audience. Uh, of that population, 57% are minorities, so it is disproportionate. In Nebraska, those racial, same racial disparities are also evident. Something's going on. There's 11 on death row here in Nebraska. Seven of the 11 are black or Latino. This is a little odd. The research that's been done on this, however, does not really find a across-the-board race of defendant effect. It's more race of victim. So the good studies that have been done, and they've been done in a lot of states, uh, Florida, Georgia, California, Illinois, North Carolina, uh, and others have found that it's the race of victim. And these studies have concluded, more or less, that given a similar homicide, the odds of a death sentence are between three and four times higher for those who kill whites than for those who kill blacks. That means that if you kill somebody in a 7-Eleven robbery, the odds of a death sentence much higher if you kill a white clerk instead of a black clerk. If you kill a cop, the odds of a death sentence much higher if you kill a white cop than if you kill a black cop. If you do a rape murder, if you do a double murder, we've done this stuff, we just recently finished a study in North Carolina. We took out all the double homicides, multiple homicides, and sure enough, those same racial disparities show, show up. If you kill multiple victims who are minorities, you're much less likely to get the death sen sentence than if you kill multiple victims who are white. You know, historically, we don't have the death penalty for rape anymore. 
thank God, we got rid of it in 1977, even though certainly before that is justified in the name of justice. We don't look at race. It's just justice. Rapists need to be executed. Between 1930 and 1967, there were 455 people executed for rape in the United States, and 405 of them, it's 89.5%, were black men with white victims. Now, I'm sure the judge would say, well, we don't look at race. It's just coincidental that, that you know, people getting busted and arrested for rape all happen to be black on white. It's preposterous. Race matters in a lot of areas of American life, and we can't pretend that the criminal justice system is the only government system or the only program or the only institution in American society that's not racially biased. I mean, we've come a long way towards equality in the United States, but we still, our generation still has to face the problems of racism and ethnic bias that we inherited from our ancestors. And that, I think, is most seen in uh, death sentencing in the United States. It's disproportionately mi minority people on death row uh, for killing whites. Statistically, you can look at any study, and it's, pro it's proven uh, by those numbers. Here's another question um, from the audience, and I want to acknowledge the Ian Thompson Learning Community that is here um, this evening. Uh, in the state of Nebraska, every inmate on death row could not afford to hire a private attorney. However, people convicted of identical crimes have received lesser sentences because they could hire an attorney. Does this double standard of being able to buy out of the death penalty undermine justice, and how can it be solved? Maybe I'll start with you this time, Professor Radlett. Yes, yes. I agree. Yes, okay. <laughs> Oh, oh, let me say one more thing. Yes, okay. Nebraska has got some of the best death penalty lawyers in the United States, some of whom are here tonight. I mean, really impressive. Uh, Alan Peterson, for example, is here. I'm not going to start naming names. Uh, but, uh, you know, absolutely. There, I did start naming names. Sorry. But uh, Nebraska is blessed with uh, a whole bunch. And they've got a, a, a really good public defender system, too. Well. I think that's, I don't know, the question just kind of boggles my mind. I don't, you don't buy your way out, at least in, not in my experience, you don't buy your way out of a death penalty. And I would agree, Nebraska has good attorneys who provide defense services to indigent criminals, indigent accused, uh, regardless of the crime. Uh, I think we are really blessed. I hear horror stories from my peers in, uh, in other jurisdictions, uh, some about having to deal with incompetence that even the prosecution is trying to protect against, and some of it because it is just guerrilla warfare with the defense. And I have to say, my experience with the defense in this state is that they have been highly professional, and, and we are lucky as a community, as a state, as people, I can't say justice anymore because that's, that's not a good word, uh, people trying to do the right thing. Uh, we're very lucky, but I just don't know of an instance where if you go out and spend money, if you have money, first of all, if you have money and you spend money, you're going to be punished less. I just cannot think of a specific example where in Nebraska or in any other jurisdiction for that matter, I mean, you get the luck of the draw and you get the O.J. Simpson theater and all that kind of thing. But I can't say in my personal experience, I have ever seen justice altered 
in its course by the fact that somebody could afford a lawyer and the defendant that was heard right after them could not. I just, I don't have an example of that to offer you and I, it makes me skeptical that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of truth to that statement. This is an interesting question for Professor Radlett. In the case of the decreasing rate of solving homicides that you mentioned, could that be a result of more careful investigative methods, meaning that many of the previously solved homicides were actually wrongful convictions? Right. Uh, well, there's no evidence to suggest that we're making any fewer errors in homicide convictions today than we were in earlier uh, years of the century. So uh, it's not further, uh, more, it's not more careful investigation. I mean, one of the things that's going on with the homicide rate, again, 92% were cleared in 1960, uh, down to 62% in 2005, is that the nature of homicides has changed. So the typical homicide in 1960 was basically domestic, spouse killing spouse, drops gun, saying, oh my God, what have I done? Calling the cops, boom, you're busted. Today, uh, homicides, uh, in, well, still the most common type of homicide is within family and friends. The person who has the highest probability of killing you, eh, eh, your family, your friends, your dog, uh, anyhow. Um, but there's been an increase in more difficult crimes to solve, gang shootings, drive-by shootings, and the growth of this uh, do not snitch culture in some urban areas uh, has been really a problem because kids, people just won't talk to the cops. We need to do better, better police community relations, do a better job of hiring police of color, cops of color, uh, so they can get out into the neighborhoods and have contacts to solve the crime. So that's really what's going on there. It's not a better investigation uh, or, or a worse investigation that leads to the decrease in clearance rates. Um, there are several questions here, and this will be the last question um, before we have closing statements. Um, one of them is, do you think the death penalty has roots in the human nature of an eye for an eye? Um, and another is, um, if we say that, uh, that murder is illegal because humans shouldn't kill each other, then how come that isn't in the death penalty discussion? I'm sorry, could you repeat the last part of that? Well, if the reason, uh, if, if we have a law against murder because people shouldn't kill each other, how come that doesn't come up, that idea doesn't come up in the death penalty debate? Well, the answer is it does come up. And the question is asked routinely, aren't we doing the same thing that the killer did when we execute them? And my answer very emphatically is no, we aren't doing the same thing the killer did. The killer, on their own, decided to take an innocent human life. We, as a society and through our criminal justice system, are deciding to take a guilty life. And if that distinction is lost on us, then we are adrift. But there's a huge difference between someone who, as for their own pleasure or their own convenience, takes an innocent life and a community that says, that offends us, and we will take the life of the guilty. It seems to me two entirely different constructs. Now, what was the first part of the question? Because Just whether an eye for an eye was really rooted in something deep in our human nature. Well, I think the thing I find interesting about an eye for an eye is if you think about it, it's an argument for proportionality. In other words, somebody plucks out your eye, you don't kill them you do something proportional. To that extent, I think 
that theme still is, drives our criminal justice system today. We define crimes, and the way we define how serious a crime is is by the penalty that we impose for it. And we say, this crime isn't as important. It's, it's bad, we, we don't like it, but, you know, good grief, it's jaywalking. We aren't going to punish that the way we would a homicide. That's the whole concept that runs through our criminal justice system of proportional punishment. And so, to the extent that that was a, an ancient articulation of that same concept, you know, somebody hits you in the mouth, you may hit them in the mouth back, because you didn't have courts and lawyers to get all that taken care of, but somebody hits you in the mouth, you can't kill them. I, I think that's the theme, but I'm no scholar and I, I, I can't go beyond my own assumptions on that. Uh, I just think, you know, the, the death penalty has become ab absurd. This is crazy. We're, spilling, we're spending all these zillions of dollars on one guy who's going to die in prison anyhow, right? Those millions of dollars that we need to give more effective help to families of homicide victims that we're not doing it's not only solve, un, solving unsolved cases, it's giving them counseling. It's training ministers so that the ministers know how to deal with it. You know, ministers can say some stupid things. You know, thank God your kid's in a better place. You know, this is God's will. You know, they're not very good at, at dealing with families of homicide victims, nor are we in the community. We do a terrible job. Oftentimes, families of homicide victims talk about when their loved one was murdered, they go to work, and the neighbors, they don't talk. They don't ask them questions. They don't say, hey, how are you? Or they don't remember an anniversary of the death. You know, they just, we meet this stuff in silence. We don't do a very good job at all about addressing the needs of families of homicide victims. We've got to do better whether or not we abolish the death penalty, but we need some cash to do it right. And abolishing the death penalty would give us that sack of cash that otherwise is wasted on the one guy. Well, I have to say, I'm not sure that money is wasted because we are confronted with situations routinely. I was confronted in that jury that I sat on. This guy killed a woman, kidnapped and killed a woman that he didn't even know as a favor for somebody who'd loaned him bail money. And we went, well, that's, that's a bad thing. And he confessed and we believed his confession we got to the penalty phase and we found out that this individual, when he committed that crime, was on parole for a homicide that he committed when he was 19. And he was, so he was shown some mercy. He'd killed, he was shown some mercy, he was paroled. And he killed again. And the question before that jury was, is this man represent future dangerousness? And I've never been confronted with an easier question in my life. He killed somebody he'd known his whole life the first time. He killed a complete stranger the second time. Do we say to them, okay, we had a prisoner in the state of Nebraska who God took because I couldn't get to him. He killed twice while serving a life sentence. Does he get those other two for free? Do we put two zeros in front of his prison number and tell him, you've got a license to kill, buddy, because there's nothing more we can do to you? That's what I'm talking about when I say proportional punishment. 
Some of these people are going to behave in a way where we just scratch our head. And if we say our hands are tied behind our back, you're just going to, there isn't anything more we can do to you. Consecutive life sentences isn't very terrifying, unless there's life after death and, and God will enforce that for us. But that's not how I understand it works. But we have to understand that in rare cases, and that's all we're talking about, is 10% of the homicides. People act in ways that is so beyond the pale of human experience that the same punishment that we give someone for a first-degree murder or their first first-degree murder, to give them the same punishment doesn't seem to be right, doesn't seem to be proportional. And I think that's, that's why we struggle with this. Individuals are out there who will give us sets of facts we cannot imagine. And then we have to decide. Do they get the same punishment as everybody else who commits that crime? How do, how do we work our way through that problem? And where do we draw that line? Where do we say, we'll put up with it up to here, and beyond that we won't? That's a very tricky business. That's the business we're engaged in Nebraska by defining our aggravating circumstances. There's no aggravating circumstance. There's never a chance for a death penalty. But that's, that's what we're wrestling with. That's the challenge before us. And I think it's a challenge whether we have the death penalty or we don't. Because if you don't have the death penalty, what do I say to the family of the guy who was killed by somebody already serving life? Tough. We can't do anything more. That's one of the possible answers. But I don't think it's going to satisfy society's need to do something retributive to reflect for everybody the value we placed on that life that was lost. Thank you. Mr. Brown, can we consider that your closing statement? Or do you want to have another minute? I'd like a closing. Okay, go ahead. And then, <laughs> and then since you opened it, we'll let Professor Radelet close it. Two minutes. Oh, I'm going for it. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Pardon Sorry. me. I did take more time. Next to the decision to send our young people to war, the death penalty is one of the most significant public policy decisions we make as a society. And like many divisive issues, the death penalty is an issue to which most people have a strong emotional reaction long before they form a thoughtful response. Once in the grips of emotion, we are all likely to uncritically embrace information which supports our emotional reaction and reject out of hand any information that challenges our emotional reaction. And we get no wiser. Therefore, I want to thank you for taking time to come here tonight and to thoughtfully consider both sides of this issue. Because in the end, we are discussing the value we place upon human life. From the moment of the murder of an innocent to the moment of the execution of the guilty, the death penalty should always be driven by our respect for human life. The murderer has shown no respect for human life. We must do so. Therefore, we calm ourselves in the face of evil and respect the life of the person accused of murder by providing them a panoply of rights and reviews in the process of determining if the government can prove that accused's guilt. However, if guilt is found, our act of respect for the innocent life lost 
is shown by imposing a penalty that is proportionate to the guilty person's actions. Enforcement of a death penalty should neither be prevented by individual acts of forgiveness, nor should it be demanded by an act of vengeance. The death penalty should represent nothing more or less than measured rational retribution in response to the very worst of human behavior. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Professor Radelet. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for your great questions. And Mr. Brown, thanks for your, I think you're great. Uh, I think you did a wonderful job. I love you too. The position. <laughs> That's not a concession, by the way. Yeah. Um, I just want to reemphasize the point that opinion about the death penalty around the world is changing rapidly. It's changing in the direction of abolition. And nowhere has there been a backlash or a strong movement to reinstate. Today's support for death penalty is falling like a rock, and this is a one-way street. More and more people from around the world are realizing the death penalty has outlived its usefulness. This notion of justice is ultimately a moral issue. What do people deserve? Justice. Is the death penalty today a just punishment? Let's ask the leaders of the major religious denominations in Nebraska, the state's moral leaders, their answer, get rid of it. Is the death penalty a superior deterrent to life without parole? Let's ask the National Academy of Sciences and their Blue Ribbon Commission that just completed the most comprehensive study of the issue in American history. Their answer, as a deterrent, the death penalty is useless. Is the death penalty costly? Nowadays, we hear a lot about a discussion about the need to cut government spending. Bill O'Reilly opposes the death penalty. Don't call him a liberal. Let's do a fiscal analysis of the death penalty the way that we do a fiscal analysis for every other state program. Nebraska legislators have refused to do such a study, but it's been done in other states. The result, we know the death penalty costs several million more than life without parole, and these millions could be used to more effectively help families of homicide victims or fund programs that have promise of reducing rates of criminal violence. And how can we help those families? Let's ask them. They'll tell you. They certainly have no sympathy for murderers, but rather than dumping millions of dollars into that one case, they'd rather use that money to find the people who killed their loved ones. They'd rather use that money for more effective aid. Most importantly, I think we need to realize what the death penalty does to us, to us as a community. The question here is what kind of society do we want to be? Have we evolved beyond the need for the death penalty? Coretta Scott King, who lost both her husband and her mother-in-law to murder, put it best when she wrote, quote, I oppose the death penalty because state-sponsored executions set a dehumanizing example of brutality that only encourages violence. Allowing the state to kill its own citizens diminishes our humanity and sets a dangerous and sadistic precedent which is unworthy of a civilized society. I refuse to accept the cynical judgment that killers of my husband and his mother deserve to be executed. It would be a disservice to everything that my husband and mother lived for and believed. Thank you for allowing me to explain the position that a growing number of Americans and others in our worldwide community are taking in opposition to the death penalty. I firmly believe that the more people know about the death penalty, the more likely they are to oppose it and that we will see the end of the death penalty in the United States in the very near future. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Professor Michael Radlett, Mr. J. Kirk Brown. This Wilson Dialogue is adjourned. <laughs>